Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex is more excited than I am today. Alex, who have we got on? Boom, we've got Phil Weir today, historian specialising in the Royal Navy in the first half of the 20th century. So in his PhD, he examined uh, British naval aviation between the wars and he's written for oh, everyone, Navy Records Society, History Today, Time. Uh, he's been on radio and television. He's done Who Do You Think You Are? Um, and he's here today to tell us why the Royal Navy deserves all the credit for the Battle of Britain, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd phrase it like that just because your historian well, head would explode. Well, yeah. Alina's <laughs> thrilled to have you. I'm so, look, okay, I'm really excited to have Phil because Phil is frigging awesome. He's lovely, he's sweet, he's a diamond. Oh my God, it's boat stuff. <laughs> boat stuff. She said you're gonna t- she's going to pay you back by calling you <laughs> Dr. Phil for the whole of this interview. Thank you, Dr. Phil. <laughs> Anyway, (laughs) 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 let's get to the point. Uh, Phil, frame the Battle of Britain for us. Where does it sit in the grander scheme of things by the time it happens in 1940? Well, I mean, inevitably, um, by the time you get to the the middle of 1940, the Second World War is starting to, to get really pretty big. Um, you've got Italy declaring war in uh, June 10th. So you've got a complete new theatre of operations opening up in the Mediterranean. And you know, there's, there's an awful lot going on at that point, even while you're, you've got the withdrawals from France and Norway going on throughout May and June. Um, you've got the, the opening of, uh, of the war in, uh, in the Mediterranean. And you know, it's, there's just a hell of a lot going on at the same time as um, what we think of the Battle of Britain. So, yeah, it's, it's extremely sort of big and complicated. And the, the war at that point is not just about what's going on in the skies over um, southern England and the Channel uh, and in those few, uh, few months of the summer. So now the Battle of Britain starts on the 10th of July, officially. But tell us about what happened in terms of the war at sea the week before. Well, the war, the week before the the Battle of Britain formally starts, um, it's a fairly arbitrary date anyway, but um, it's in many respects one of the biggest weeks in naval warfare of the the entire war. Uh, I mean, you end up, starting out on, uh, give or take, around the 3rd of July with the, and people kind of forget this because it's a little bit on the controversial side, the, the basically wiping out and capturing of most of the French Navy um, in the course of a single day in Operations Grasp and Catapult. A massive effort by the Royal Navy to, to capture um, and literally, they, they send sailors aboard um, the, the ships that are in British ports, um, you know, armed with guns, saying, hi, we're taking your ship. Um, they point battleship guns at, uh, at another French squadron in, uh, in Alexandria, uh, and sort of suggestive, you know, please don't go anywhere and start demilitarizing. Uh, and of course, you know, rather fatally, the, uh, there is the, the big clash at... Uh, uh, Merzel Kabir, where one of the most significant French naval squadrons is sunk. Um, 
But I mean, you know, pretty much after, not terribly far after that, the, uh, the first happy time of the Battle of the Atlantic really starts opening. You get the first U-boats uh, arriving in French bases. I mean, it, it really is. France basically you know, surrenders on the 22nd of June. And by the 5th of July, I think it is, the first of the U-boats are starting to arrive at Lorient. Um, led by uh, the U-30, of, uh, commanded by Fritz Julius Lemp, who uh, famously sank the liner Athenia on the first day. Um, and the, the, I mean, this is huge. This sort of uh, brings the U-boats out past the, uh, the, the defences of the, the Channel and um, the uh, Iceland Faroes Gap, Denmark Strait, and so forth, that, that Britain largely controls and gives them free access to the Atlantic. And allows them to stay out in the Atlantic for a lot longer as well. So they really start sinking um, sinking ships in the Atlantic at that point. And you know, shortly after that, in August, uh, they're, they're joined by another 26 Italian submarines at Bordeaux. Um, <clears throat> and then, of course, literally the day before um, the Battle of the Battle of Britain is considered to start, you get one of the biggest naval battles of the war. Uh, the Battle of Calabria and the Mediterranean, where uh, some of the really um, the few times that uh, um, the Royal Navy's Mediterranean fleet and the Italian fleet you know, actually meet in full-scale battle. You've got you know, three battleships on the uh, on the British side, two on the, the Italian side. It's inconclusive, but I mean, you know, in scale, it's you know, huge. Um, this is the, the first really big. Um, naval battle since Jutland, I think, really. Um, so why isn't that classed as part of the Battle of Britain? Well, inevitably, um, and this is kind of one of the really key things with it, um, it's, it's about what you define as, as the Battle of Britain. And, you know, obviously people have got their, their sort of concepts of what the Battle of Britain is. Uh, um, yeah, everybody's seen the, the film and uh, you know, lots of uh, top-notch chaps with top-notch handlebar moustaches um, yeah, saying, uh, spring chicken to shite hawk in one easy lesson. <laughs> and yeah, we, we can all quote lines and it's great fun. Um, <laughs> I do it regularly. <laughs> but um, yeah. There is this sort of narrow concentration um, on the uh, on the, the events in the uh, um, in the air and around southeast England, and there's there's a good reason for that, I think, um, and it's because it's nicely geographically bound. It's got you know a clear um, clear kind of enemy, the, the Luftwaffe, against a you know, clear. Um, good guy, the um, fighter command of the RAF, you know, in you know, this this nice sort of clearly defined space for you know, air superiority over over southern England. That, that is, you know, the the home country. So, to a large extent, stuff that's related to defence of the empire, like um, Calabria and so forth. And you know you get the the Italian invasion of, uh, of Somaliland um, you know, a few days before Adlatav, the first big day of the, the Battle of Britain, and you get the uh, the um, invasion of Egypt itself uh, just a few days before the Battle of Britain, uh, what's known as Battle of Britain Day itself in in September. All this stuff is sort of classed as imperial defence and probably not desperately unreasonably, but we do seem to forget that sort of stuff. And it's, um, it is kind of problematic because um, you know, Britain fights the war as an empire. Um, you, know, the, you, you can't really get away from that fact. Um, so you, you do kind of need to look more at that. So I think we can agree that definitions aside, the point of this period is for Hitler to defeat Britain. What planning had they done before the war? Well, that's a, that's a fun question because, I mean, in terms of, um, for example, invading Britain, pretty much nothing is the short answer. They, they really haven't prepared for, for anything like that. 
The Navy, on the other hand, has done a fair bit of, uh, of looking at basically Britain is um, the German Navy's key enemy. Um, that's who they particularly plan against. And key to it all, of course, is uh, famously um, Admiral Dernitz and his U-boats and uh, trying to, to sink as much British commerce as, uh, as possible and basically um, blockade Britain into, um, into quitting. Um, but of course, you know, they don't really expect what happens in the Battle of France. They don't expect France to fall the way they, they the way it does. Nobody really does. They don't expect to be able to uh, to be within anything that resembles an invasion reach of, uh, of Britain. So, really, um, the prospect of an invasion is really only sort of raised. I think it's mid May. Um, strangely enough, by the navy um, and it's the the relationship of the navy to invading Britain is a bit weird. Um, yeah, Admiral Rader, I think, as I say, is, is the one that uh, I think initially proposes it. But um, really, they are looking at a plan where uh, essentially the army is not really trained for this. Um, they're, they're not trained in amphibious operations and equipped for it. Um, the Navy's not got the shipping for it. The Navy's certainly not big enough to, to protect it, um, which really leaves you with the, the Luftwaffe, which similarly isn't really trained in sinking ships. It's not really trained in strategic bombing, um, which might be your other option if you were, were a of the sort of uh, bomber baron uh, mindset. You just you know, try and bomb Britain's cities until they um, you know, burn to the ground and, uh, um, and, the, and the country capitulates. But um, you know, the Luftwaffe is not set up for that. It is predominantly there as a, as a support system for the army. So what do you do? Um, well, so the... the the uh, German Navy sort of proposes a, an, an invasion. And um, key to that is, well, you know, how do we get rid of the, the Royal Navy and the RAF? Well, up steps Goering, um, up steps the Luftwaffe and says, right, we will smash the RAF and uh, gain air superiority over, over southern England and, uh, and the, the Navy can just bring across the barges quite happily and we'll see off the, the Royal Navy as well. Um, and uh, it seems largely at that point that the, the German Navy, the Kriegsmarine, basically just sort of says, well, thanks, good luck with that, <laughs> and, uh, and continues off really with its, uh, its own campaign in the Atlantic. So, yeah, it's, it's really down to, uh, um, at this point, in terms of the, the invasion plan, um, Operation Sea Lions, it's famously called, it's down to um, the Luftwaffe to be the service that actually goes ahead and prepares the ground and gets everything you know, ready and mostly defeats Britain. So uh, the army's got a relatively uh, reasonable time of it because you know, they're, they're otherwise not equipped for a a full-on D-Day style landing. They're just not. 10th of July, it officially starts. What is the Royal Navy's direct contribution to the Battle of Britain? Well, um, most immediately, you've got two fighter squadrons, um, 804 and 808 uh, naval air squadrons based at uh, Hanston and Wick in Scotland. Uh, they're flying the very latest in uh, naval fighters. The 808 has is, is just equipped itself with the, the new fairy former, um, which is a two-seater aircraft, but you know, powered by the same Merlin engine as the, the Spitfires and the Hurricanes, and um, it's got the, uh, the same um, eight Browning machine guns in the wings, although an awful lot more ammunition to them. And they, 
Um, you've got uh, possibly some chance of a, a former of getting somewhere near uh, Tom Hardy's famous uh, uh, massive you know, Russian bullets that you get in the, the Dunkirk film. <laughs> um, you've also got, as I say, 804 Naval Air Squadron, um, which is uh, re-equipping with the, the first US fighter um, that's, uh, that's been bought by Britain. Well, actually... Technically speaking, the, uh, these have been bought by France before France fell, but the, uh, the, the purchase was uh, immediately transferred to Britain. <clears throat> and, uh, and these are a fun little aircraft um, that uh, the Britain calls the Grumman Martlet. First of them arrives on July the 27th, and they, they slowly re-equip out until sort of mid-September. Um, and the Martlets... And if you really wanted to, uh, to, to stir up a little trouble, it's you know, quite good fun. You could sit there and suggest, um, in some respects, the, the Martlet is possibly the best fighter um, in service during the battle uh, because it's, it's got the same sort of performance as a hurricane, same sort of speed, same sort of manoeuvrability, but um, because it's American, it comes with the big 50 caliber machine guns and can cause an awful lot more damage. So it's got a hell of a lot more firepower and because it's carrier aircraft it's got an awful lot more range as well so I mean, if you ever wanted to uh, to start a minor fight you, you could sort of start suggesting that, uh, that the royal navy actually has the best fighter in the in the battle but on the other hand you'd have to accept the fact that really they're only fully sort of up and uh, up and running on it by the end of september um, which is really the end of the battle um, and of course, they're stuck up in Scotland. Their main duty um, is protecting the, the great fleet base at Scapa Flow. Um, and therefore, they don't really sort of meet up with uh, any enemy aircraft. Um, indeed, I think the first time a, a Martlet shoots down a, a German aircraft is Christmas Day 1940. That's. <laughs> Um, it, it's sort of that removed from the action, but they they are there. They are counted as being um, part of the um, part of fighter command. So they were technically acting under fighter command um, because of the, the the integrated nature of, uh, of Britain's air defence at the time. Uh, they're, they're effectively operating under fighter command's orders, and they are obviously by being there releasing. Um, to RAF squadrons for, for duty elsewhere, um, which obviously has considerable use. Beyond that, uh, you've got 23 uh, other fighter pilots spread throughout squadrons in the uh, in RAF Fighter Command. Um, the famous legless ace Douglas Bader, uh, who's commanding 242 Squadron in the battle, uh, has uh, two of them. One of them. Um, Sub-Lieutenant Richard Dickey Cork uh, is actually his uh, you know, Bader's wingman. Um, terrific fighter pilot that ends the war. Well, when I say ends the war, ends his life. Sadly, he, uh, he was killed in an accident in Trincomalee in 1944. But by the time of his death, he is um, one of the, the top aces in the Royal Navy uh, in the war in um, some something like 16 uh, aircraft destroyed at that point and obviously becomes an ace during the, the Battle of Britain for the first time and then actually um, manages, I think, five kills in a day uh, protecting the, the Malta convoy, uh, the famous pedestal convoy in, uh, in 1942. So, you know, a hell of a pilot. Um, and, you know, these guys obviously, you know, not all of them are quite as successful as uh, as Dickie Cork, but uh, yeah, they they do step in, contribute, and uh, and, and shoot down aircraft. And you know, some of them are lost. I think there's about half a dozen of them um, are lost during the battle. But they they integrate into their their squadrons and uh, sort of you know, still wearing their naval uniforms and gently uh, getting ribbed by their RAF colleagues and you know, politely ribbing them back. Uh, uh, always one, polite. Well, always, always. <laughs> <laughs> I think, think one of them painted um, the, uh, the flag signal, uh, Nelson's famous, famous flag signal, England expects uh, every man to do his duty on, uh, on the um, 
uh, on the fuselage of his of his hurricanes. <laughs> nice touch for him. Um, but yes, uh, there was a, obviously a, a little gentle ribbing going on uh, here and there. Um, and it's not just in the air as well. You've uh, remarkably enough got uh, um, guys on the ground um, because the, the Royal Navy in the interwar period sets up a, an organization called the, uh, the Mobile Naval Base Defense Organization. It's basically a, uh, a kind of a, a naval base in a box sort of thing that uh, you've got um, um, assorted you know, bits and pieces to set up a, a, a forward naval base um, in, a, in a port or island um, that's far from home kind of thing. Um, part of which, of course, is a, a group of anti-aircraft guns manned by Royal Marines. And, of course, you know, mid of, uh, middle of the Battle of Britain, what do they do? Well, they, they unpack these guys and uh, um, set up uh, a bunch of them around, I think it's Dover and um, uh, Folkestone. And I believe the, uh, the, the first MNBDO um, anti-aircraft uh, unit is, I think, the highest scoring anti-aircraft unit um, actually in the Battle of Britain. So, you know, there, there is a contribution, it's got to be said, um, to squadrons um, largely out of the way of the battle and, uh, and you know, 23 other pilots. Plus, uh, plus some anti-aircraft guns. This isn't decisive in the battle, when it, um, we're not talking the uh, the, the absolute. Um, you know, these guys win the Battle of Britain. I mean, there's, there's others in greater numbers who shoot down you know, greater numbers of, uh, of, uh, of Luftwaffe aircraft. Alina, poles. <laughs> Yay! Yeah, we, we we had to had to bring in the, the Battle of Britain polls just for Alina, I think. To wake her up, if nothing else. Well, yeah, I just <laughs> uh, thanks for that, Alina. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm still here. I'm still awake. Don't worry, we're all good. Of course. Um, so yeah, there are others that uh, that you can you say were there in greater numbers, contribute more, and of course, you know, you know fighter command itself. Um, with its its assorted um, setups, the radar and the control systems, and uh, the ground crews and all the rest of it that, that go into uh, to keeping um, the the fighters in the air. Um, so yeah, let's just say the Royal Navy doesn't win the the direct confrontation in the air. That's I think. I think we can clearly say that, that um, but you know, there are kind of going back to the, the key point of the, the opening, um, there is more to it than that, because, of course, this isn't in technically, this isn't just a fight for, for air superiority. It's you know, what's going to happen about um, any sort of invasion that might be attempted by the, uh, by the Germans. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I have to ask, though, in the event that the air, the air fighting fails and Operation Sea Lion occurs, what is the Royal Navy plan for repelling an invasion? 
Um, well, long story short is sink it. <laughs> Sounds pretty good to me. Which is, you know, it's a pretty solid plan, let's be honest here. Um, basically, the, the Royal Navy masses a huge force um, in order to, to try and prevent an invasion. Um, basically, by Battle of Britain Day on the, on the 15th of September, um, directly under the command of uh, Commander-in-Chief Nor, based at uh, Chatham and uh, Commander-in-Chief uh, Portsmouth, uh, obviously at Portsmouth, um, and you know, bases, you know, naval bases basically between the Humber and Portsmouth, really. You've got, I think it's six cruisers, 70 destroyers, and I think it's another 700 small patrol craft um, you know, little armed yachts, motor torpedo boats, and so on and so forth, uh, on immediate standby, 200 of which are, are sort of constantly at sea um, throughout the period, just sort of keeping a watch on uh, on prospective invasion routes um, and just sort of staying out of port so um, you know, they're, they're at less risk of uh, being bombed. Um, so... They, You've got this huge force there. Um, the Royal Marines artillery again um, are sat at Dover. And uh, marvellously, they, they've got two massive 14-inch battleship guns uh, nicknamed Winnie and Pooh. That, uh, that, That's yeah. so British. I love it. <laughs> it's brilliant, isn't it? I love it. Um, and they, they can do actually hit targets uh, the other side of Calais. If you ever want to see one of these 14-inch guns, it's not one of the, not one of the ones I think used um, for the, the Dover emplacements, but uh, um, at Fort Nelson, the, uh, the um, artillery collection there, they've actually got a 14-inch gun of, of that type. They are absolutely huge, uh, you know, firing massive 1,500-pound battleship shells. <laughs> Um, that's not going to be fun for, for anybody uh, trying to cross the channel at that point. Um, but beyond those sort of direct um, you know, anti-invasion forces backing those up, um, the battleship HMS Revenge and cruiser HMS Emerald arrive actually pretty much on the 15th uh, at Plymouth, uh, fresh from delivering Britain's gold supply to Canada, incidentally, um, in a fun little operation called Operation Fish. Um, and they they are basically sort of there as the, the big heavy backup in the channel. Um, then really key to it all is the home fleet under Admiral of the Fleet Sir Charles Forbes, um, which is you know, the, the key British fleet at, uh, in home waters. Um, and that's comprised of the battleships HMS Nelson, HMS Rodney, battlecruiser Hood. Um, <clears throat> the uh, battlecruiser Repulse, aircraft carrier HMS Furious, and plus attendant cruisers, destroyers. And this is a lot of, of heavy metal. Um, Forbes himself, again, around about the sort of um, 13th, 15th, uh, of September moves down from Scapa Flow to Recife to be nearer any invasion site. Uh, he leaves behind uh, Repulse and Furious to guard against uh, any attempts by German heavy cruisers to, to break out um, into the Atlantic. They're also there to do, and, they, and this is one of the sort of contentious bits with the, the Battle of Britain defence strategy in the Royal Navy. Um, because Forbes wants thinks a lot of this is overkill, um, and he's, he's probably right. He, he wants more concentrated backup at Scampa Flow so he can start making offensive moves against the coast of Norway and various other bits. In fact, when he, when he arrives at uh, uh, site, he's fresh back from a, running a carrier strike with HMS Furious um, out to the Norwegian coast. And this sort of thing, uh, Furious and Repulse um, continue to do uh, a couple of times, again, during the battle, um, just to, uh, to, to keep you know, 
German shipping on its toes um, off the Norwegian coast and then keep um, keep the Germans off balance a bit. So yeah, the the uh, the assembly of of British naval firepower is absolutely enormous at this point, and you know, I say we have to bear in mind that. Um, the German Navy is not set up for a, a major amphibious operation. They just, they don't have um, the landing craft. They don't have the, the specialized um, ships to transport landing craft. Yeah, none of this, the, the sort of stuff you see on D-Day is just not there. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the comparison with the German Navy itself, which has taken a fairly savage beating um, off Norway. So what sort of costs are we looking at in terms of ships and casualties for the Royal Navy during the Battle of Britain? Well, here's the fun bit. Um, I mentioned earlier um, that, of course, you know, um, the Luftwaffe is charged with um, taking on the RAF and the Royal Navy to, to clear the way for any invasion. Um, now, the Luftwaffe is not actually, as I mentioned, terribly good at sinking ships. They've not really got any serious armour-piercing bombs at this point that can do major damage to, to armoured battleships. They've not really got any aerial torpedoes to um, sink large ships. Their accuracy in terms of, sort of bombing um, Royal Navy ships off of uh, Norway and then Dunkirk ain't actually that great. Um, I don't think they actually managed to sink a single one off Dunkirk. Certainly they they managed one or two off of Norway that are moving. But pretty much everything that's, any destroyer that's sunk off Dunkirk is is basically sort of sat stationary off the beaches um, or stationary in the the harbour at Dunkirk itself. Um, as, as a fun example, um, I always like to use the, um, the Luftwaffe takes, I think it's 10 hours trying to sink the cruiser HMS Suffolk off Norway, um, in April, I think it is. And they managed to sort of split the hull a bit with a, a near miss and she suffers some flooding and you can see a spectac- fairly spectacular picture of her um, with a, her stern very low in the water after she gets back to scatter flow. But in 10 hours, they can't hit her once. Now, a fully trained um, in anti-shipping um, naval air force, the Japanese, two years down the line um, off, uh, um, off Ceylon in 1942, catch two cruisers of the same class and take 10 minutes to sink both of them. Um, this is a fun comparison as to, to what Luftwaffe is actually like in, um, in 1940 in terms of sinking ships. So they're not really very good at it. And just for fun and games, I've, I've gone through um, a list of the destroyers that are lost in, in home waters during the Battle of Britain. And basically, um, it's what one, two, three, four, effectively seven um, destroyers. One of them's lost in a collision. Um, two of them are lost on a mine laying mission while trying to, to lay mines, you know, lay British mines off of Texel in the Netherlands. Um, so, but they run into a German minefield themselves. Um, one of them, I think, gets uh, mined on the approach in the Thames estuary, approaching home port. And really, it's only therefore four, I think it is, that uh, that are actually sunk in any level of bombing. Um, HMS Brazen escorting a convoy off Dover Strait. HMS Wren uh, escorting minesweepers off Suffolk. Um, HMS Delight uh, just left Portland Harbour to, to move closer to uh, to the invasion area. Um, 
And the only one that they actually sink while in harbour, strangely enough, is, is HMS Codrington um, when they bombed over harbour uh, on the 27th. And literally pretty much all of those are lost in, uh, lost to bombing, are lost in the last week of July. They, see, they don't sink anything, any other destroyers um, during the Battle of Britain. I mean, it's given you've got 70 of the blasted things <laughs> in ports, as I say, from the Humber to Portsmouth. It's not a good ratio, is it? They're, they're almost not trying. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, really? Is that all you got? You know, um, this is... I mean, obviously, ports are fairly well protected. They've got... Um, I mean, Dover, as I say, has got the Marines and their anti-aircraft guns and so forth around. So it's not an easy target by any stretch of the imagination, but there is literally damn all effort put into to sinking um, the British fleet before the invasion. Uh, and, and you kind of start wondering really how serious this is. And, you know, coming back to the Navy, of course, interestingly, having suggested it, what are they doing? Uh, you know, are they pulling their U-boats out of the... Uh, um, out of the out of the Atlantic to uh, to set traps for these destroyers that are you know bear in mind these these destroyers are sort of going in and out of, of port and so forth. Nope, not a chance. Uh, and there's there is no loss of a, of a destroyer to to a U boat in, in this period. Certainly not around the uh, uh, around the British Isles. It's they're almost not trying against the Royal Navy. Um, and I mean, you know, you can sit and read the you know, guys like James Holland and uh, Stephen Bungay and so forth on on the losses um, the RAF suffer in the Battle of Britain and the, the attempt to, to take out fighter command, um, which we broadly know, of course, doesn't really succeed. But in terms of the effort to take out the Royal Navy, it's, it's pretty much non-existent. It isn't there. And if you know what, it, what there is, you know, is desperately unsuccessful. <laughs> I've got to ask as well. Like conversely, so it's like they haven't got a decent plan. They don't make a decent fist of trying to get rid of the navy. And conversely, the Royal Navy takes the fight to them because when you're talking about anti-invasion and repelling, they're actually going into French ports and hitting them there, aren't they? Yeah, they they very much are. Um, I mean, it's one of the one of the great fun ones about the Battle of Britain, and um, you know, it's all bound up in the uh, the whole sort of uh, service rivalries and so forth. And uh, the reason all this gets so contentious is that it turns into a bit of a slag fest of uh, you know, Navy supporters versus RAF supporters saying, "No, oh, your bunch were useless in the Battle of Britain. No, oh, your bunch were, were nowhere to be seen off Dunkirk and all this sort of thing." Um, and you know, the, the various comments that, oh, you know, the, the Luftwaffe would have sunk the Navy if, uh, if they put any battleships into the, the channel. Well, free him. The Royal Navy actually does put <laughs> battleship into the channel um, among various other ships. Um, and they, they run a, a program of bombardments against um, the channel ports, the, the French channel ports, where the Germans are assembling um, the sort of Rhine barges and so forth that they're desperately converting into becoming this knock-together invasion fleet that they somehow hope will will do the job. And, I mean, you know, a few examples. The 8th of September, the cruiser HMS Aurora, um, six-inch gun cruiser, goes and um, batters the uh, the vessels in Boulogne. 30th, 30th of September, the, the monitor, um, you know, small, small hull ship with just a massive 15-inch gun turret sat on it, um, literally just a, a gunship, um, starts firing on Calais, um, and yeah, yeah, <laughs> very much in the channel, boys and girls. Uh, and then in October, the you know, Revenge I mentioned earlier, um, along with a, a group of destroyers, goes in and, uh, and batters Cherbourg um, and all the, uh, the barges in there in concert with, uh, with RAF Bomber Command. So, you know, um, the Navy is actually you know, pretty active and taking the offensive, as I say, as you say, in, uh, 
uh, in the channel itself and, and elsewhere. Can I ask you, uh, what in terms of the actual strength that they put out, the German Navy, is it decent? Um, no. <laughs> I mean, the German Navy... I see what you're saying about, like, you have to start questioning. Were you ever really that serious about invading yeah. Britain? Oh, oh, God, yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, uh, German naval strength it takes a hell of a kicking off Norway. Um, I mean, the, Norway is the one that they, they managed to, to kind of get away with. Um, Admiral Raider, the, um, the head of the German Navy, said, you know, we managed it against all the possible tenets of, of naval warfare. Um, <laughs> you know, th this was against all the rules. I mean, they do stuff like load troops onto, onto warship decks and so forth and, and sail them into Norwegian ports. It's the, the one sort of big amphibious operation, but it costs them. Dear God, does it cost them it? I mean, it, mm. it costs them 50% of their destroyer uh, strength. The, the entire destroyer strength of the German Navy is, is 20, and by the end of the Norway campaign, it's down to 10. Um, wow. Three cruisers, and the two battleships, Scharnhorst and Neisnau, that they've got, um, basically both of them get torpedoed, one of them, Sinking the carrier HMS Glorious, uh, one of the destroyers puts a torpedo in Scharnhorst, um, and trying to get back, um, her sister ship Neisenau gets torpedoed by a submarine HMS Clyde, uh, which damn near blows the bow off. Um, <laughs> you, you should see pictures of it; it's, it's spectacular. The, the hole is just. Nasty. You're going to have to send me those. I want to see. Oh yeah. Um, and neither of them sail again that year. They're, neither of them are capable of sailing until 1941. So throughout this, this entire period, Germany's got two heavy cruisers, the Admiral Scheer and the Admiral Hipper, um, three light cruisers that also double up as mine layers, 10 destroyers. I mean, if you're, you're trying to protect an invasion fleet, fleet against the Royal Navy, I mean, hell, Admiral Drax at the Nore has got, um, at, you know, at Chatham, has got more under his command than the entire German Navy before Charles Forbes ever gets anywhere near with the home fleet. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those where you kind of got to be joking. Um, the, the key plan, incidentally, for the, the big German surface ships, uh, Scheer and Hipper, is not for them to protect the invasion um, because that's just going to be suicide. It's for them to try and make a breakout into the Atlantic to try and get at the British shipping um, and try to distract the home fleet that way. Um, but of course, uh, as I think I mentioned, they, uh, Forbes left uh, Repulse and Furious up there just to, to deal with any, uh, any such eventuality. And frankly, you know, Repulse was cheerfully capable of dealing with, uh, with the pair of them without really too much hassle. Um, a battle cruiser against a heavy cruiser is just not even close to being funny at that point. So, yeah, the, the German Navy is in not a terribly good position. And as I say, they, they're not putting any great level of effort into to whittling down um, their, their prospective Royal Navy opponents. Um, there's, a, there's a fun German assessment in, uh, <clears throat> back in '44. Um, where they, you know, the German naval command sat back and, and looked at, uh, at Operation Sea Lions and, and preliminary work and preparations proceeded. The uh, exceptional difficulties became more and more obvious. Yeah, no kidding, boys and girls. <laughs> uh, lack of superiority at sea was supposed to be compensated for by air superiority, but it was never even possible to destroy enemy sea superiority by means of our own air superiority. The enemy's fleet and other means of defence had to be considered a decisive factor. I mean, all right, this is the Navy. Um, the, the Luftwaffe would probably have come up with a slightly different uh, different assessment, but it's it's worth noting um, the German Navy really didn't want a bar of this and didn't really think that they could seriously pull it off. Phil, we joked at the beginning about 
giving the Royal Navy the credit for the Battle of Britain. Um, but you and, and you like cringed because you're an academic and you don't ever want to give a straight yeah. answer for anything. But now you genuinely say there is a problem in interpreting the Battle of Britain as a narrow fighter command versus the Luftwaffe, don't you? Yeah, I mean, there, there is. Um, because, uh, as I, I hope I've uh, managed to suggest over the last, uh, last few minutes, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, and really, there is a danger if you, you look at the Battle of Britain simply as a, as a fighter command versus the Luftwaffe. Uh, Winston Churchill, uh, marvellously enunciating, you never own in the field of human conflict. There's so much been owned by so many. Oh, it was almost like granddad's in the room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to call him that now after all that abuse on Twitter. He's just granddad now. Absolutely. It is the way forward. Um, yeah. When you look at it through the perspective of, of the few as fighter command, Possibly chucking in the the control system, um, Dowding's fantastic integrated air defence system, and you know, take absolutely nothing away from that. The ground crews, um, you know, the people making the uh, the fighters and all this sort of thing. Um, even then, you're still missing out on a hell of a lot, and there's a degree to which um, you're even kind of the. If you're an RAF uh, partisan, you're even doing down to a degree the, the contributions of the RAF because uh, Bomber Command, of course, is, you know, as I say, um, some frequently in coordination with the Navy, uh, bombing the, uh, the, uh, the French ports and the, the invasion shipping there. Um, there's famous uh, raid that uh, Guy Gibson of Danbusters fame was supposed to go on the, uh, to try and destroy the Dortmund Ems Canal, down which uh, a lot of these sort of Ryan barges were, were moving. So they, they tried to shut off the, the supply by bombing the canal. Um, tragic failure. Uh, and Gibson was, uh, I think most people count as fortunate to miss that. But, you know, because the, the losses were, were fairly spectacular. But, uh, yeah, the, you've got Bomber Command doing this. You've got um, Coastal Command um, patrolling uh, you know, pretty much 24 hours a day. They've, they've got maritime patrol aircraft patrolling the channel, uh, looking out for invasion craft and obviously um, trying to, to hit any... Um, small German craft that are, that are interfering with British shipping and, and all this sort of thing, laying mines outside of, uh, of um, French, Dutch and German ports to, to try and prevent any, uh, any um, shipping leaving and so forth. Uh, and I mean, they, they lose quite heavily. I think they lose about 150-something aircraft and, and 600, uh, 600 men. Mixed in with them, of course, are also yet more Royal Navy squadrons, the fleet air arm, um, which also do a lot of the, the mine laying stuff. Um, and they are, of course, uh, because they're, they're capable of, of anti-shipping strikes, um, going to be one of the, the key elements in, in taking out any invasion directly or at least attempting to. So you've got those guys involved as well. Um, and... There is an awful, and you know, even beyond that, um, you've got the preparations on land. I mean, uh, the the anti-invasion building um, construction preparations of all the defences and the, the concrete pillboxes and so forth that you can still see remnants of around southern England. One of the biggest uh, construction programmes ever initiated in, in this country. Uh, and yeah, you've got all that. Uh, tied in there. And obviously, one can question how much some of that was needed, um, whether or not the invasion was serious. I mean, um, interestingly, I, I would say, and it's academic caveating, it's almost impossible to tell, but you, you could almost say that uh, um, 
running the invasion uh, and sort of suggesting the invasion was one of the, the best things that, uh, that Admiral Rader was able to do um, in order to, to try and get the most out of the, the, the war in the Atlantic because obviously you've got these 70-odd destroyers sat stuck in, uh, um, sat stuck in ports they're not out in the Atlantic protecting convoys and so forth, which is incidentally where where um, Sir Charles Forbes, the, the home fleet commander, always reckoned they should be. Uh, as I say, he always felt it was the massive naval preparations were just overkill um, and felt that the, the Navy's destroyers and cruisers would be better off employed elsewhere on the uh, on the convoy routes in the Atlantic and you know, helping him to to take the offensive uh, potentially up in Norway, but what the the threat of invasion does is it ties down a huge amount of the Royal Navy, uh, whether by accident or by design, and one could argue that it leads to to one of the the more dangerous points in the uh, the first U boat happy time. Um, and uh, where the U-boats are really sort of starting to, to sink an awful lot of, uh, of British shipping. So there's, I think we need to, to look at the Battle of Britain in a, in a wider, wider perspective. As I said earlier, I can see why we narrow it down. I really can. I mean, it's, it's a nice, neat story. And I think we as historians do... I think struggle with the concept that you know this this story is told this way because it is a nice story that all fits fairly neatly together, um, even if reality is a bit messier. But you know whether whether you want to call the Battle of Britain a narrow um, fighter command versus the Luftwaffe a bit, or whether you want to, to take a, a wider wider appreciation, and I think. We do all need to uh, to pay attention to the bigger story that's that's surrounding it uh, because it's it is big and it is fascinating and it encompasses Britain and to an extent the empire as well. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing us a complete different other perspective of the Battle of Britain because we always talk about what happens from the air, we never talk about what happens from the sea. So thank you very much for that. Thanks, Alina. A boaty perspective <laughs> as well, Alina. You survived. I did. I survived. It's okay. Don't worry. I'm still here. <laughs> You're such a dick. No, I know. She was really well behaved, wasn't she? <laughs> I love you. You're such a knob. Join us tomorrow when Katie Tucker will be with us to talk all about her speciality, which is osteoarchaeology. And this being me and Lena, we could not resist her particular speciality, which is decapitation. So join us because that's brilliant. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.